Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered, the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode. Yeah, it was really grim. And at, at that time that I uh, felt that Lloyd's was doomed and I couldn't see how we could survive. We had the losses. The members started suing their agents. Their agents started claiming on their professional indemnity policies, which were compulsory at that time and so on and and everybody was suing everybody else and I couldn't see how we could get out of it. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner of the law firm RPC and in each episode I'm joined by a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week we have Reg Brown and we will be discussing the crisis at Lloyd's in the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, Reg has been on the podcast before, series one, episode 13, and he was so good, we wanted him back. Reg is a Lloyd's legend, uh, having been a deputy underwriter, an active underwriter from the mid-70s through to the year 2000. Uh, as such, he lived through the most traumatic period in Lloyd's 300-year uh, history, a period which Lloyd's very nearly did not survive. Uh, and that's what we're here to discuss this morning. So, so Reg, welcome back to the podcast. Well, thank you, Peter, for having me back. Uh, I hope we enjoy this podcast as much as we enjoyed the last one. <laughs> I'm sure we will. I'm sure we will. Um, and, and when we had our last podcast, you were on to uh, talk about the Insurance Museum. So uh, the, the, do you want to give us an update on that? The physical museum that we had in mind, we still have a couple of premises identified. But our problem is that um, there's nobody in their offices in the city anymore. And... Um, The city is deserted. The workers and tourists are staying away. Uh, We're not sure when they will return. There's considerable doubt over that. The government thinks that uh, tourists will not return before 2025. So we're working on the alternative of a, a virtual museum. We're going to create, we think, five sort of rooms explaining and exploring five different classes of business beginning with fire, then maybe marine, and then life and pensions. We're going to look at the future risks, and we're going to look at Lloyd's and possibly motor. But we still need more support, more pledges, and we need people to come back to their offices so that we can actually talk to them. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think we all want to go back to our offices for for a whole host of reasons. But uh, I'm I'm very sorry to hear that it's sort of kind of, it's in a state of flux at the moment, but I have to say a virtual online museum sounds like a great idea. Well, normally, uh, you know, it's the physical museums who then develop a virtual option. We're doing it the other way around. <laughs> so um, we'll, we'll have to see how we get on. Anyway, we're here to talk about the crisis at Lloyd's um, in the 1970s, 1980s, and the early part of the 1990s, and, and also how Lloyd's sort of survived that and, and remoulded itself. Um, for the 21st century. But before we start to look at kind of what went wrong, we need to discuss the basic structure of, of Lloyd's and, and how it worked in, in 1970. And forgive me for, for doing this summary, and I'm sure you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that at the top of the pile, you have the underwriters, and at its simplest, those underwriters would bring in premium and would pay out claims. And that either resulted in a profit or a loss. And the underwriters did this underwriting on behalf of a syndicate of investors uh, who were known as names with a capital N. Um, And if there was a profit, it was distributed amongst the names. And if there was a loss, then obviously it had to be paid by the names. 
uh, and the names liability was completely unlimited. So if there was an enormous loss, then the, the names would be called upon to pay that enormous loss down to their very last farthing. Is that correct so far? Uh, almost. As an underwriter, I never felt I was top of the pile. <laughs> I always had the uh, the chairman and the committee of Lloyds to answer to, and more directly, my own managing director and board of directors. So I've never felt I didn't have a boss. And apart from that, the names were my boss too. So uh, I never felt I was top of the pile. But otherwise... I can say as a solicitor, Reg, you were the man that we were most scared of. well uh, i never felt that uh and and i always um i used to like meeting my clients a lot and i had a lot of solicitor clients too so i like to meet people and i met the the names i used to like meeting the names and so on because they employed me and the, the next building block that we need to understand is how a lloyd syndicate accounted so do you want to talk us through that and, and the three-year annual accounting, three-year cycle, et cetera? Yes, I, th- I think, Lloyds, let us assume that, that we're offered a, a risk uh, to underwrite in December of year one, say, uh, and we write that risk in December. We don't fully earn the premium until the following December. So we're already at the end of year two. So Lloyd's decided that um, in order to be more accurate in, in accounting for the claims, you know, the claims might take some time to develop. And so they decided uh, in the early days to have a three-year accounting period where they close the underwriting years in arrears. The claims would take some time to develop. And even at that late stage, closing at the end of the third year, the claims were still outstanding. There were lots of claims still outstanding. They all had to be estimated. So there was a risk. Either you overestimated or you underestimated. You were never precisely accurate. And in addition to that, you had a buffer for called IBNR incurred but not reported claims. And that depended on the type of business you were writing and how many years it took for claims to manifest themselves. So that's what Lloyd's decided in the very early days. And that's what I was doing in 1970s. And and you mentioned that at the end of the the three-year accounting period, there would still be a a number of files that would would be open, claims that would be open. So uh, at at that point, you you took out reinsurance? At that point, we added up all the claims, outstanding claims uh, on all the reserves we had created. And we effectively bought a reinsurance policy from the succeeding year's names. If the syndicate didn't have a succeeding year, it was able to buy it in the open market. It might do that. It might buy it from another syndicate, as happened later on in the the Troubles. Some syndicates were buying runoff policies from other syndicates. Exactly. So... We have the three-year accounting period. At the end of that, that there is this incurred but not yet reported estimate, yeah. which is then reinsured to close. So RITC, so you have INBR, sorry, IBNR, incurred but not yet reported, and RITC, reinsurance to close. Yeah, the INBR was part of the RITC. In my case, very often, the, the reinsurance to close premium coming in was greater than the annual premium I was about to write. Yeah. 
So, so depending on the year, the, the how how long the syndicate's been in existence, the RITC was was a massive sum. Uh, but presumably, if it was all calculated correctly, the system worked fine. Well, the system worked fine. Uh, the problem was. And the problem has always been you got too many optimistic reserving specialists who never thought it would come home to roost, and it often did. Yeah, exactly. My instructions to my claims people were always, you reserve at the worst possible, and it can only get better from there. And um, we, we got it more or less right most of the time. Yeah, but that, as I said, that there, there were many that, that wasn't the case. And for syndicates who had been around for years and years and years and years and years, Basically, it just rolled over from year to year to year. So if, if, if there were mistakes in prior years, then that just amplified and increased over time, presumably. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so that's the, the accounting strategy is the next building block. This is a little bit of a tangent, but in the 1970s, there were kind of what were known as baby syndicates set up. Do, do you want to talk us through those? The baby syndicates came about because of the complete understanding at Lloyd's of the law of agency. By the time I got into Lloyd's, I had my law degree, so I knew a little bit about law. And underwriters at Lloyd's did not see themselves as agents of the names, and they saw nothing wrong in creating a baby syndicate that would cream off, in their mind, the best risks for the benefit of themselves and favoured brokers and people like that. The practice was so widespread that even the members of the committee of Lloyd's and even the chairman of Lloyd's had his own baby syndicate. And the better they played the game, the smarter they appeared to be to the uh, the average person in Lloyd's. And I, it horrified me. I couldn't quite see the sense of it all. But that was baby syndicates. So the, the baby syndicates were, as you say, were syndicates where, where the best risks were moved to the baby syndicate so that the less good risks were kept in the main syndicate. Yes. But the follow-on from that is that the names for the baby syndicates were effectively insiders and the names on the, the main syndicates were increasingly, during this period, outsiders. Yes, but I say perceived best risks, and, and this is a, an important word because... Not all baby syndicates were successful. Some wrote what they called the top layers of risks and in the belief that they were so far away from the losses, most losses are settled for lower sums than the top layers of liability policies, for example. And they felt they were so far away from them that they wouldn't get a loss. Dodd's law meant that when there was a loss, when it did hit, it hurt badly and uh, there weren't enough reserves there to pay those losses yeah so some baby syndicates were caught cold so the next building block that we need to understand is the lmx spiral or the london market excessive loss spiral so do you want to talk us through that and how that happened as well well i will try and explain it to the best of my ability but i was a uk retail insurer not essentially a reinsurer uh, and i never fully understood how lmx actually worked. <laughs> that gives me a lot of comfort. <laughs> it, it was essentially a reinsurance gimmick. And my view at the time was that Lloyd's had allowed membership to go too fast uh, and did not have enough quality business coming through the door. Although we could only accept business from Lloyd's brokers, we underwriters were limited to business, writing business to Lloyd's brokers. 
they had no obligation in return to show us any business at all. And I sat on several committees through Lloyd's, Rokeby Johnson New Business Issues Committee, the Hiscox Working Party, trying to resolve the issue of how do we get more good business in through the doors of Lloyd's. In the end, I just gave up on these committees. I was fed up with arguing with the brokers and, and, and so on. And I decided in 1990, I opened uh, an office in Leeds, Manchester, Birmingham and Rygate to attract more of the direct cream business that I wanted. But in the meantime, the Lloyd's brokers in London hated me for it because their services were not needed. Their regional offices had to share their commission with them. Now they didn't. They kept all the commission and they were dealing with the Lloyd's syndicate. I mean, the boys in London hated me for it, but nevertheless, it worked for me. And those offices are still around 30 years later. And doing well. But a number of syndicates had no real product lines to sell. They had no particular specializations. And so they began reinsuring other syndicates. And that's how they got their premium income. And a few brokers, like um, a guy called Bill Brown, uh, made an absolute fortune. He cornered the market and made a fortune. But most of the business in the LMX Spire was already in Lloyd's. It wasn't new business to Lloyd's. And there was a lot of double counting there. So when a loss came in, it was a game of pass the parcel. So for example, if Syndicate 1 passes some of its loss to Syndicate 2, Syndicate 2 then passes some of its loss to Syndicate 3, on to Syndicate 4, 5, 6. And when it gets to Syndicate 10, it comes back to 1 again because Syndicate 1 is reinsuring Syndicate 10. So the loss was magnified. And uh, it went round and round and round. But there was more than one LMX spiral. There was one for property catastrophe. There was one for personal accidents. And I have to confess that the little LMX business my syndicate wrote, I wrote a little bit in the LMX PA spiral, personal accident spiral. I remember the broker explaining to me that when we reached the top of the spiral, it didn't come back into Lloyd's, it went off to America to the life assurance companies in America. And, you know, we can't lose, he said. You're bound to make a profit. <laughs> and for a long, short time, I did believe him. I had an underwriter who believed him anyway, and I fired the underwriter eventually because uh, it didn't really work. But in a small way, uh, I got involved. But I've heard it explained that the LMX spiral wasn't really a spiral. It was more like spaghetti. It was just these links going left and right and up and down throughout Lloyd's. Yeah, 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 but it was business in Lloyd's, mostly in Lloyd's. Not many of the companies were involved. Some companies were, but mostly the business just went round and round. It was already in Lloyd's and it was reinsured in Lloyd's and reinsured again and again and again. And um, it just kept the, law, the losses. And if you added up the totality of the claims, if you think about it, Syndicate One has a claim for £100 and it passes on 90 90 goes to Syndicate 2. Syndicate 2 then has a claim for 90. So you've now got a claim for 190 pounds and so on. It goes on. So it was a nightmarish thing and, and it was really created because of the lack, as I've said already, of, of good quality business in Lloyd's. Right. Well, having now set the scene with the, the way in which Lloyd's uh, accounted and the way in which the RITC was just rolled from, from year to year, and we talked about baby syndicates, the way in which some of the, the not so good 
risks were kind of concentrated in, in, in some syndicates with better risks in other syndicates. And we have the LMX spiral. We sort of set the scene now for the disaster that happened in sort of the, the 80s and, and early 90s. And, and that can be summed up in one word, which is asbestosis, can't it? Okay. Do you want to talk us through a little bit of that? Because effectively it, it, it relates back to policies that Lloyds wrote way back when, so the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s. Fortunately, uh, as my syndicate only started in 1977, we were not around in the, in the period when all this business was written. But I understand that some of the claims went back further than the 1930s. I think uh, stories about railway sleepers in the, at the turn of the century causing uh, asbestosis claims and so on. But um, anyway, so we did not write U.S. liability business. So that's, I knew nothing about the U.S. liability and I didn't chose not to write it. You know, we were a short-tailed claims-made syndicate. And so the policies giving rise to claims on asbestosis were essentially the occurrence-based business. So claims that went all the way back to the occurrence of the injury. And one of the questions with asbestosis was when was the injury, when did it occur? And, you know, we had all these uh, arguments about exposure, manifestation uh, and triple trigger. The exposure being uh, the first date on which an asbestos particle was inhaled and the courts decided that was the first injury. So the, the claim could go back to the policy in that year. So, you know, I often think about the time when we started as Syndicate 702, the members' agents, the lovely members' agents I've already uh, alluded to, were persuading their names to join these long-tail syndicates that had been around for years because they had massive, massive reserves on which you could earn investment income. New syndicates, new liability syndicates, particularly like mine, were, were not favour of the month. So they persuaded them to join those long-tail syndicates with massive reserves only to discover that the reserves weren't massive enough when the losses came in. Um, and as you say, it, it's, you know, it, it all boils down to the, the, the occurrence. And you know, there was a, a case in the US in, in 1980, which um, says, as you, as you say, the, the, the occurrence was when the, the exposure to the, the asbestos fibres, yeah. um, which is why these claims go back to the you know, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. And the courts also held that every insurer throughout that period, every single exposure of, of asbestos um, had a duty to defend and to indemnify. So we're effectively talking about tens of thousands of individual claims, Absolutely. all funneling into Lloyd's, either through direct insurance or through Lloyd's reinsuring US insurers. Yes, yes, and it was thousands, and it was the victim had the right to compensation from all of the insurers in all the years that he'd suffered asbestosis. It wasn't just one year. It was every year he, he suffered exposure to the disease. So it, it was an aggregating nightmare. Uh, and yes, it was big, big money. Yeah, and because of the reinsurance to close approach to accounting, it all rolled up into the current year. So one set of names took the risk. Well, yes, and, and that is why a lot of those syndicates sought to buy reinsurance, mostly from Dick Althwaite 
and the athlete syndicate who thought this was uh, overplaying the nightmare and uh, there was money to be made on taking on these risks. Well, he was certainly wrong at that. He was certainly wrong on that, yeah. Well, All of that by itself would have been bad enough. But the late 80s also saw a series of disasters, catastrophes, didn't it, which was just added to the problem. So yet you have the Piper Alpha disaster, the, the oil rig in the North Sea, which went up in flames and cost 167 lives. We have the Exxon Valdez, the, the huge oil tanker going down in, in just off Alaska. And then you have two huge hurricanes as well, Andrew and Hugo. So the Lloyds, which was already under enormous strain because of asbestosis, suddenly had these catastrophes to deal with on top. It certainly wasn't just asbestos or, or the LMX spiral. Uh, the losses you mentioned helped a great deal to exhaust the reserves that syndicates had. And eventually, you already used the phrase, coming home to roost, everything came home to roost. An enormous number of chickens came home to roost. And between 1989 and 1991, uh, Lloyd's suffered losses of over £8 billion. And in 1991, almost 100 syndicates closed, which I think is about the number of syndicates that actually exist in total now. Thousands of names were financially ruined. Um, 30 suicides from names, at least 30 suicides. It was a grim time, was it not? It certainly was. And um, yes, uh, it, it was really grim. And it's at that time that I uh, felt that Lloyd's was doomed and I couldn't see how we could survive. Pretty nearly all the barristers at the London Bar were engaged in some point of litigation between Lloyd's. We had the losses. The members started suing their agents. Their agents started claiming on their professional indemnity policies, which were compulsory at that time, and so on. And, and everybody was suing everybody else. And I couldn't see how we could get out of it. And, and, and there was one famous meeting in 1991, an annual meeting of members' names, at which you were present, as I understand it, where the chairman of Lloyd's at the time, David Coleridge, stood up and, and, and took questions from names for, for eight hours. Is that right? Yes, he also chaired another one in 1992, and I was at both meetings. In 1991, he had to report the uh, 1988 loss of £510 million. And that was the first loss Lloyd's had incurred in about a decade. And um, it was a bit of a shock to the names, who were told you'd only ever make profits. In 1992, the loss was $2 billion for 1989. So much worse than had been forecast. Now, I was at both the 91 and 92 meetings. And as a long-standing diabetic, I have to look after my carbohydrate intake. And I couldn't miss lunch, for example. So I watched the meeting start from about 10 o'clock. Coleridge was downstairs at the microphone. The committee of Lloyd's sat behind him as he spoke. At 1 p.m. he was still on his feet answering questions from the irate names. And so I poodled off to lunch. And at 1.30, 1.45, I came back and he was still on his feet, still answering questions. As far as I know, He didn't ask any of his committee members to help him. And I don't think he took a comfort break either. And and it was an extraordinary performance. And I think on the second occasion, it left the names grateful for the fact that he was going to be replaced 
by David Rowland. He announced on that occasion that he was standing down at the end of his second year and David Rowland would take his place. And um, the names were grateful for that. But I applaud Coleridge. Coleridge took so much flack in those two meetings. I don't know how any man could take it as well as he took it. Brilliant. But um, you've already mentioned David Rowland, um, who kind of was Coleridge's successor. And, and you've described Rowland as the, the, the great saviour of Lloyd's. Could you explain why that's your view of him? Well, Coleridge appointed him to lead the Rowland task force to try and examine what had gone wrong at Lloyd's and what was the way to get out of it. And he came up with the, uh, a report outlining the framework for progress at Lloyd's. So Coleridge uh, invited him to succeed him as chairman. At that stage, the role of chairman was free gratis. You didn't get paid. You did it as part of your service to the Lloyd's community. And you were an insider. Well, Roland was chairman of a broking house and um, needed to earn a living. So he said, I can't just give up my day job. If you want me, you'll have to pay me. So Roland became the first paid chairman in Lloyd's history. And Roland had an incredible skill to inspire others. He always said that the secret to success is to surround yourself with people who are smarter than you are. And so he surrounded himself with people like Robert Hiscox and um, the older brother I never had, Brian Kellett, who um, inspired Roland and Roland inspired me. Uh, and the, collectively, they inspired us all to believe there was an answer, there was a solution. We would get there. And, and he began a process which kind of became known as as reconstruction and renewal, didn't he? Sort of modernising Lloyd. He, he did indeed. And there, there were quite a lot of uh, questions that the committee is trying to resolve Lloyd's future had to answer. And one of them was, uh, you know, the question of, of how do we get more capacity, capital into Lloyd's? You know, the names were designing and reducing. You know, there was no sign of anybody wanting to become a, a, an unlimited liability member of Lloyd's at the time. So Brian Kelly, who was a bit of an amateur lawyer like me, said to the committee, look, the Lloyds Act said only persons can be members of Lloyds. Now, there are natural persons, which is what we think we are limited to, but he said a company is a person. A company is a legal person. Why can't we have companies as members of Lloyds? The committee said, oh, don't be stupid, Brian. I mean, you know, we've never had anything other than natural persons as members of lawyers. So Brian insisted that they get counsel's opinion on the subject. And it's, it worked. Council said, of course, you can have corporations as members of lawyers. And a corporation is a legal person. So that opened the door to corporate capital, which solved the capital problem to a great degree. Reconstruction and renewal was a widespread thing about creating equitas. Equitas being the bad bank, and it would hoover up all syndicates' years, liability of the syndicates. It would do the reinsurance to close of all syndicates, their 1992 and prior years of account, all the way back to those early days that we're speaking about with the asbestosis and so on. So to do that, Roland recruited Heidi Hutter. Uh, we borrowed Heidi Hutter from Swiss Re in America 
and she came over to start up Equitas. David also was so embarrassed by the three-year accounting system because he could never answer the question about current performance. He could only answer the question about going back three years. He had no real idea, no real grip on trading as of today or yesterday. And, and you know, So he instructed that we had to produce some figures in a better way so that he could talk to the press more authoritatively and help them. And he, uh, he introduced annual accounting uh, and now Lloyd's produces annual accounts in, in more, more or less the same way as the, the company market. So how close do you think it came to, had it not been for Roland and, uh, and for Heidi, you know, how close did Lloyd's come to complete liquidation? I think very close. I told you I uh, thought it was doomed. And I remember, I think I said last time, what saved my sanity was I took a narrowboat holiday, the first time I'd ever been on a narrowboat holiday. But I had a week on a narrowboat holiday through the Northampton uh, up to Warwick and back on a narrowboat for the week. Now, there, there was nothing quite like racing along at four miles an hour in the beautiful back countryside <laughs> Uh, of Northamptonshire and, and Warwickshire. And I came back from that fully refreshed and um, inspired by Roland thinking we will survive. But I do remember when reconstruction and renewal meant that we were all duty bound to buy a reinsurance to close from Equitas. And I remember when I got my reinsurance to close premium from Equitas, my Equitas premium, my underwriting account, my report to my names, I said, if this was a free market and I was able to choose, I would not buy this reinsurance to close because it is too expensive. We as a short tail liability underwriter, claims made underwriter, we're paying for all those idiots who wrote a current business in the United States for all those years, not understanding that the claims could come in 100 years later. But we're paying for that. And, and having chosen not to write that kind of business, it hurts me to say we're, we're having to pay it. So if I had a choice, I wouldn't buy it, but I don't have a choice. So from your perspective, it was a necessary evil rather than anything else? Yes, yes. So looking back, what are your main thoughts on that period from, from 1970 through to, to 1990? How did it go so wrong? And... During that period, there was uh, recruitment of names. So the, the number of names increased from about 6,000 in 1970 to over 32,000 in sort of 1990, most of which were outsiders and mostly not sufficiently wealthy to take on unlimited liability. Was that a deliberate strategy, do you think? How would you describe it? I would say it began with Cromer when Lord Cromer did his report. And at that stage, Lloyds was struggling to entice enough new natural persons to become members of Lloyds. And it was stuck at about 6,000. And Cromer decided, well, you've got to encourage more people to come in. You reduce the qualification requirements. You have mini names and, and all sorts of things. And so the members' agents took heed and, and travelled the world trying to recruit names. And they recruited a lot of people, you know, the farmers like, uh, like I've spoken about, who were asset rich but cash poor. 
persuaded them there was a second stream of income for them in Lloyd's and, you know, 10 years of profit, blah, blah, blah. You, you know, you can't lose. Well, of course, you can lose. And um, there, there was too much capacity for too little business. We didn't have enough good business to fill the the, uh, the name's requirements. And so new syndicates were popping up all over the place almost every day. There was a new syndicate and I'd look around and I think, who the hell is that? And why are they here? What are they doing? And they didn't seem to have a proper business plan. They didn't seem to have any anything going for them or any particular specialization. I mean, we knew what we were in business for. We were writing UK claims made liability business and we introduced directors not as liability business into the UK. We did legal expenses business, pension fund trustees, liability business. We were leaders of that. So we, we had products that we wanted to sell. But these guys had no idea what they wanted to sell. They just became innocent capacity. You know, they just wrote business put in front of them by the brokers. I wasn't going to do that. I went out and got my own business with my offices up and down the country. But it was incompetence on the part of the members' agents who had no real insurance training. They were uh, friends of friends who, who just happened to have a few connections. And so they were sent far and wide. And, you know, my New Zealand and Australian friends think they were brought in to Lloyd's just because they saw the asbestos claims coming. Well, I don't think they were smart enough to see them coming. If they'd seen them coming, they would have dealt with them years and years ago. So it wasn't a fraud, I believe, uh, but it was certainly incompetence. Yeah, thank you. So, I mean, that's the end of our discussion. So finally, just the, the final question. What would you say is the one most important lesson that you believe should be taken from this whole period? Kind of one lesson that, that any business would be wise to take heed of. Well, the, the one word I would use is professionalism. If we were better at our job, then a lot of these uh, problems wouldn't have happened. But certainly tighter regulation on the part of Lloyd's. At one point, it didn't feel it could stop these new syndicates starting up. If the managing agent put up the capital that was necessary and the members did, Lloyd's couldn't stop them. Well, Lloyd's could stop them, and it now does. And so it's got better regulation, it's got better quality control, and there is a lot more professionalism in Lloyd's now than, than there was in my day. Reg, I said finally, I am going to ask one more question, which is, how's your card collection going in lockdown? We talked about the fact that you're a Deltaologist, a collector of, of, of postcards. How's that been going over the last few months? Uh, well, it's going slowly, like most other things, but um, I, I've just bid on a, a real photograph postcard of the entrance to the 28 building in Leadenhall Street. Now, the, uh, the the printer is printed without the apostrophe in Lloyd's, so it, somebody could think it's the bank, but I've looked at it and I've checked it, and it is the 1928 building uh, entrance in Leadenhall Street, so hopefully I will be buying that. But the postcard collection is going well, and um, it's great fun. Excellent. Well, I look forward to seeing the, the whole collection in the online insurance museum. No, 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 no. It, won't, it might. Well, my wife keeps saying to me, "What's going to happen with it when when I go?" And the answer is, I'm not bothered what happens to it when I go, but I might actually give it to the museum. Quite right too. <laughs> Reg, that was an absolute delight. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Peter. 
Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and please rate, review and share it. It really does help. Please also listen to another of our podcasts, Taxing Matters, which is hosted by my brilliant colleague, Alice Kemp. Insurance Covered is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you and I hope you have a lovely day.